Today's episode of Mission Impact is part of a series of interviews I did with Peter Cruz on diversity, equity, and inclusion. While each of the people that we talk to in this series do not necessarily focus on the nonprofit sector, there's a lot to learn from each conversation. Today, Peter and I talked to Ariel Salome. Ariel Salome is a healer, speaker, and transformative leadership and team coach. Her mission is to develop people and organizations who lead wholeheartedly. Mission Impact is the podcast for progressive nonprofit leaders who want to build a better world without becoming a martyr to the cause. I'm Carol Hamilton, your podcast host and nonprofit strategic planning consultant. Welcome to Culture Fit, the podcast where we do our best to answer your diversity, equity, and inclusion questions that'll help you navigate the professional landscape, especially when you are not a culture fit. I am Peter Cruz. As always, with me is Carol Hamilton. How are you doing? Good to be yeah. here with you, uh, Peter and Ariel. Great to have you. Yes. <laughs> um, so, kind of. So just as an introduction, Carol already mentioned our, our guest name, Ariel. So Ariel, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, everyone. Thank <laughs> you for having me. My name is Ariel Salome, and I always like to lead with who I am, what I love, what lights me up, and what I have to offer to the world. So I illuminate pathways for leaders to embrace their full humanity which in turn gives them the permission to give others around them to do the same thing. I craft experiences that turn on light bulbs and produce aha moments, but ultimately I'm a healer. So leaders are no longer called to be unblockers and closers, but the holders and the keepers of the mental, physical, and emotional well-being of their teams. And I believe that the world's greatest problems, including systemic oppression, can find those healing solutions when we show up for each other as fully human and fully divine. Wonderful. How, I guess, like, to start us off, is how has, it sounds like it's going to be a very lengthy answer and response, but how has 2020 impacted your work? Well, 2020 is actually been good for me actually yeah um and i anytime i interact with my team anyone that i have contact with is um you know as you can tell from my introduction fully human and fully divine i i advocate that we always show up in our full awareness of who we are as creators and as human beings and so i just see this as an opportunity for consciousness and the expansion of consciousness. And what that means is that there are so many things that have been beneath the surface, just kind of bubbling, almost like a volcano. So it's 2020 was that push to get all of the lava, you know, to kind of pop out. And of course it's scary, right? Nobody wants to be overtaken by the hot magma coming from the center of the earth's core. However, you know, it's, it's a natural process um, it's a cleansing process. And if you study any climates or environments that have um, volcanoes, such as Hawaii, you know, there's a really, there's a beauty that really evolves after the cooling of the magma. There are particular plants, floral and fauna, that thrive in that environment. And I see this as a kind of evolution. So for me, you know, I've, um, I, 
have landed in my career at a tech company. I work for Lyft. I am the program manager for inclusive leadership. I also have my own coaching and consulting firm, a Metanoa experience. And I've had this own kind of transformation of my own. So 2020 has been great. And I just see it as a healing opportunity for us as individuals and as a collective. Yeah, certainly there, there certainly hasn't still, like, I think this is one of the furry, like, um, I guess I've only been alive for like 31 years, but like in my short time just seeing how you're actually witnessing a lot of change and you're like in the action, you're actually being a part of it. Like this is the things that people will read about, you know, decades from now. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's, it's interesting to now, it's, it's interesting, but also very foreign and, and unique and uncomfortable at times uh, to be a part of it, like trying to question what you can do as an individual who may not be, uh, you know, working in some of these professional spaces or, mm-hmm. you know, if you are kind of like a, quote-unquote cog in a wheel at an organization like what can i do to, to try to instill mm. the change yeah um, yeah for kind of for those people I, I, we, we will talk about like elite i think leaders in those spaces um but for people who are kind of like active members of the change but may not have the power to instill it um what has been your experience with them like what uh What are some words of wisdom for those people? Yeah. So let me clarify this. I actually think that everyone is a leader. So it's not just about where you sit in an organization, but you're the leader of yourself first. You're the leader of your family. You're the leader of something. Non-positional leadership is just as important as positional leadership. We all have a part to play in this kind of evolution. I love uh, Benjamin Zander in The Art of Possibility. He talks about, he's an orchestra conductor, and he talks about leading from any seat that you're in. So we know that in the symphony, those who are in the first chair, um, I played the violin as a child. And so, you know, being that first string is what you, um, and, and in the first seat is what you aspire to. But everyone in the orchestra has a part to play that is very critical and important. So it's really, I like to say, if you, if you bolster your own awareness of self first, right? Where do I fit into this like macrocosm of society and all of the societal um, ills and the structure that exists? You know, where is my place And I say that it just starts with education, educating yourself, enlightening yourself, and then kind of spreading your own personal gospel after. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I loved how you uh, described it, uh, kind of 2020, as the the metaphor of the the volcano and kind of what's been bubbling underneath for um, a long time. And for some folks, I think um, the question for 2020-wise, why now? Why, why did it take y'all so long <laughs> to, to, to have some awareness of, of what's been going on for a very long time? Um, but, you know, there have been folks trying to do education and trying, you know, building kind of a, um, I don't know, it's in some ways like getting people ready to then this outside, I don't know, not really outside, but all these forces coming together in a particular moment, allowing something different to, to happen. Um, but yeah, but that it's been building for a long time. Yeah, there's, uh, there's a concept called the law of diffusion of innovation. 
And I believe Daniel Pink's book, The Tipping Point, or is that Malcolm Gladwell? I'm not sure. It's one of them. But the whole point, the whole point is there's a scale um, by which people, you have early adopters and then you have the great majority. And I think we've just reached that majority. And so we're starting, we've seen the tipping point and now the rest is kind of like <laughs> waiting for people's old ways to kind of die out. And with this, the oncoming generations to really carry these messages forward. Yeah, because I think that the whole, the next generation of um, employees and just like beings um, are going to, I do not feel like <laughs> the amount of, um, I guess, I think because people who are, I guess, a little more resistant to the change will just feel like they're just overwhelmed with this mm -hmm. wave and this rush of, of change because I think the generation below me, like Generation Z, like they are far more with it than I ever was at, at their age. And, you know, they have the vocabulary, they have the, the quote unquote arsenal. Yeah, <laughs> um, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, with millennials and, and Gen X, so like as they're, I guess, we're moving up in these organizations as well. So and if we're trying to, I guess, be more receptive uh, to feedback, I think that's always something that, you know, I faced when I was an employee talking to someone like much more of my seniors, just um, that open door. That flexibility, that 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 uh, that kind of desire to change and leave something better um, mm -hmm. is wow. I, I I I'm going to do my best to like try to instill that change, but I'm probably going to feel out of place because of what I've been used to in the professional landscape mm -hmm. versus what everyone who's going to be coming up in their workforce. Um, you mentioned how we all have different roles in in this. Mm -hmm. um, for people in regards to diversity, equity, inclusion, who may be part of the majority, mm -hmm. um, and I think allyship and co-conspiratorship are, are terms that have been thrown out there, um, how, how can they act on their desire to be one of those people, but not knowing where to start? Yeah, yeah. I, I like to say that it begins with cultivating courage. There's this level of like uh, zero Fs that you have to give, <laughs> you know. <laughs> there, there, and I like to consider myself to be a status quo disruptor. And I think if we take on that uh, persona, if you will, to be a status quo disruptor and just be like, you know what, this isn't right. And it comes down to meetings when you hear, you know, interrupting emails. I've done that at previous employers. I've seen, I've been CC'd on emails and I've interrupted language that wasn't inclusive. Um, I've been in meetings and I'm like, hey, I haven't heard from so-and-so. Let's make sure everyone has a voice. Um, when I do leadership trainings for Lyft um, and we do a word cloud in the beginning of our inclusive leaders training is where who's in the room and who's not in the room. So yes, of course, I'm going to keep re referencing leadership because my personal philosophy is everyone is a leader and I do leadership development. However, just for the everyday individual contributor, who's not a people manager, you know, just that, you know, like I said, taking on that persona of like, if I see something, I'm going to say something. And and it's it's safer to do so now than it ever has been before. Mm 
what were you what you were saying about um, kind of stepping into courage and building those you know muscles for for courage because I think one of the uh, I mean one of the cultural values um, in in white culture is being polite mm -hmm. and you know being conflict uh, avoidant yep. and um, skirting around the issue and so. Uh, you you know you're having to step into something that's kind of countercultural, and and but I think it is in those small moments, right? I mean, there's so many culture. We talk about culture as kind of this big thing, but it's really made up in all of those small moments. Absolutely, interactions between people. How are you showing up? And and so it goes back to that. You know, each person can be a leader if they're thinking about how they're showing up. And, and, and it may not be calling people out. It may be asking, you know, asking that disruptive question mm -hmm. uh, that interrupts the kind of just status quo, normal, how we might go about things. Yeah, absolutely. And we've witnessed that this week as a country, as a, as a global community, when um, Meghan and Prince Harry came forth to share their story. You know, it took a lot of courage and it also showed like, this is real. You know, and uh, everywhere. Yes, and everywhere, right? We have this culture of silence because that's just the way it's been. Mm -hmm. I mean, if that wasn't one of the top themes of uh, Megan's experience, was this is how it is. Everybody's gone through it, you know. And it's like, well, does it really have to be that way? Especially for those who like pledge sororities and fraternities. Um, you know, I've always thought like, well, why do we have to keep doing it just because it was done to you? <laughs> can, can we be and, and, and hazing in, in sororities and fraternities, hazing in professions? Exactly. Oh, yeah. You know, wow. Well, I had to, I had to do that when I was XYZ entry level person. So yeah. Yeah. Hazing and yeah, I just came from five years and working in academia and higher education. The process of obtaining a PhD and becoming a tenured faculty member is just as uh, fraught with hazing as any other experience. So with all of these, right, that's a theme that we're seeing. So why can we just ask ourselves why? And is there room for something else? And with it's like this history of modesty within like kind of like white supremacy culture, like how, what do you, what are some, I guess, I, I guess maybe I'm asking for like a free lesson here, <laughs> a pro bono lesson, but like for, for younger people of color who had to assimilate into these like institutions, how, like what are some recommendations for them to like kind of shake it off and you know, have, I guess, the courage and, and build that stuff when they've kind of been beaten down so, so very often. Yeah, I would say the, the one tip I would say is find community and find your safe space. Um, I have been fortunate to land in a place at Lyft that values people being their authentic selves and being able to bring their full selves, um, encouraging you know, if you're in a position of leadership or an influencer in any culture, you know, can you can you create a space where it's safe for everyone to be themselves, you know, to disagree on something and to move forward? Um, 
I also, I also would suggest, so imposter syndrome, I just came out of a lovely, uh, with Dr. Chayla White Ramsey taught a, um, she taught imposter syndrome for the forum, great, great group uh, and network of women who are teaching career development. And it's, it's, imposter syndrome is a really high uh, experience, psychological experience for people of color. Um, and then we also, in Whistling Vivaldi, the author talks about what it means to have stereotype threat. They kind of all fit in this same category of what it means when this perception of who you are because you're a member of this group um, that's underrepresented or that's melanated or that's queer, that you know, this is somehow going to impact how you're able to show up, but how can you challenge even those internal narratives that because you don't quote unquote fit in? I, one way that I did this for myself personally, because I am a spiritual mystic, and so I infuse that in everything that I do. So it's really hard to give an answer that does not have some type of spiritual undertone. So I'm really big with affirmations. And one thing in my early, in my 20s, when I was um, having a difficult time of finding my place in my work style and, and how to lead and how to build teams, I said, I bring value wherever I go. And I just kept saying that to myself because I was receiving these messages like, you're not valuable, you're creating problems, there's chaos around you. And I was just like, you know what, that's not true. I'm not going to receive that narrative. I'm going to receive this narrative. I am going to create a narrative that I create value wherever I go. Uh, another message that's pervasive, I don't know how this shows up in other ethnic groups, but from those um, particularly who are descendants of Amer um, the enslaved Africans who were brought to America, is this notion of you have to work 10 times harder to get half of what you know the, the predominant group has. I challenged that narrative. I was like, that's not true. If I show up and do my best, I'm going to be rewarded. Now, a lot of people would be like, oh, you can't say that. You're disregarding the experiences. Yes, they are very real experiences. But in our process of acknowledging that we are also divine beings and we have the power to create and shape our world, our world through our thoughts, actions, and our beliefs, if I continue to tell myself, I don't have to have this pressure of doing 10 times the work of someone else to get half the recognition. I'm just going to be the best at being me and people are going to see it. The period. And that's, that's how I live life. Yeah. I mean, I remember like, cause I'm still, I guess, relatively new and relatively young and just like the works workspace because I'm probably going to work for another 50 years. But I think <laughs> words of affirmation are a big thing that I think we all struggle with, especially like, when you are part of a minority, mm -hmm. um, because you're getting that culturally from your family, like you mm -hmm. should, you need to do this and that and this and that. So mm -hmm. you're like, okay, I need to confine that way. And then you get into the workforce and like, well, you're, you only have so few doors open to you. And you know, you're, you're, you're getting comments about your tone about like, how, mm -hmm. you know, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I had a conversation with someone and, and about tone. I was like, ah, I am an African indigenous woman. Yeah. 
like that's the story of our life. They're like black women are sassy. They have a chip on their shoulder. La 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 la. I'm just like that's your narrative, and I don't subscribe to that narrative. And I've had I've had instances where I've been penalized because of someone's perception of being this tall, uh, five foot ten, two hundred plus size, you know, black woman. And I'm just yeah. like, this is just not the place for me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I definitely felt that as well. Just like they're, they're, um, they're just by your appearance, just like how, you, like what role you'll play within the organization, or whether or not you're serious. Like there have been, like, because I'm like six two, was two fifty, and like a Puerto Rican man. So you know, in the summer I get darker. So it's like people just like think I'm a very intimidating presence, or mm-hmm. you know, maybe I'm authoritative, or maybe like. You know, people don't even want to ask me questions or, or do anything uh, that might slight me. But then mm-hmm. it's like my whole professional career has been to dismantle that. Exactly. Like, that's a, a burden that we have to live with. It's like, no, like all judgments that you may have are just like, no, no, that's not right. That's not true. Mm-hmm. Um, I, ha- I wanted to follow up, Ariel, on one, one thing you mentioned. You mentioned stereo threat, uh, stereotype threat. And mm-hmm. I'm I'm wondering if you can... Talk a little bit more about what that is and how that shows up. Yeah, so stereotype threat is a concept that was developed and and uh, illuminated in the book Whistling Vivaldi, and the author studied what occurs for underrepresented groups. I believe he was stu- <clears throat> excuse me. I believe the author was studying African Americans. I'm not a hundred percent sure, um, but what happens to when they sit down to take a test? So if there's a stereotype that, um, let's, let's use, uh, the model minority myth. So Asian Americans have, it's said like, oh, they're good at math. So if someone keeps telling you you're good at math, you're good at math, your brain will actually trick you into believing like, Hey, I'm good at math. So the converse of that, and let's clarify, we know that that is a myth and that is not for everyone. But the way that our brains work psychologically, we tend to internalize those messages that have been fed to us from the time that we pop out of our mother's womb, you know, and we enter into the world. These messages are subconsciously fed to us. So if the message that women or um, other minority groups are not good at math, that way, or if the even if the teacher, if the student has perceived that the teacher doesn't even think that they have capability, that impacts testing scores. So that's stereotype threat. So it has nothing to do with someone's actual innate capability, but those subconscious, the subconscious reception of those stereotypes can hinder academic performance. So internalizing those oppressive messages. Mm-hmm. I guess one one kind of slight uh, window of, of hope that I think about is that given that, that all of these culture and all of these messages, all of these systems were made by people, mm-hmm. then they can be unmade and made into new things. And that's Absolutely. So I think starting to like uncover that actually this isn't just, it isn't, it doesn't just exist kind of beyond us. Um, you know, we're, we're either helping to perpetuate or 
trying to dismantle any of these systems, any of these ways of thinking in everything we do day to day. Absolutely. Absolutely. So as workforce had to like shift due to co- in response to COVID and, you know, vac- vaccinations are being rolled out. So they can only one, it's only safe to assume that, you know, there will be a return to normalcy, so to speak. Um, what are you and in your work, what are you most looking forward to and optimistic about the post lockdown world? Hmm, that's a loaded question. <laughs> that's a lot. Um, but I actually want to add something to a question you said earlier. Um, when you talked about what can people who are allies and co-conspirators do? Another step, so here we go. Another step that allies can take is to normalize calling out social identity. Because um, what Carol has illuminated earlier around what are the culture of whiteness um, and what are some of these kind of old ways that have been passed down from generation to generation is, is this silence or the hushing because as Carol said, it's being polite. It's not polite to talk about race. It's not polite to talk about, you know, identity. So if we just say, I am Irish American, my family has been in this country for X, Y, Z numbers of generations, or my family comes from Russia, my family comes from Italy, right? And to embrace that within yourself, to call out like, okay, I, there's this thing called whiteness and I am a part of it because I don't call white people white people. Um, just philosophically, fundamentally, I like to tie people to a land and to a nation because that's who we really are. Whiteness is a social construction. And it just so happens that people who do not have melanated skin get swept up into this construct of what it means to be white. But we, there are European Americans. There are people who have origins, um, just as there are people who have origins here in um in the Americas, the indigenous people, the tribes of those who are also nameless. So if we normalize, I am, and I am X, Y, Z, queer, black, differently abled, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I'm Muslim. I'm Jewish. I am, you know, all of these things because colorblindness is at the root of it is erasure. You're just erasing people's identity to say like, oh, I don't see you because you're just a human. It's like, well, our brains are not set up to work like that. So normalize calling out and isolating social identity is one thing that you can find comfort with and then celebrate, celebrate the differences because diversity is an excellent thing. Diversity is a beautiful thing. And studies show, scientific studies, mathematical studies show that when there are people from different groups who are together, you're going to find different solutions. So it's like step one, normalize difference mm-hmm. and then go on. Right. <laughs> normalize. Well, and I think it's beyond that. It's, it's because what I've observed is it's very easy for someone who is not white to, to name their identity first and foremost as whatever group they are part of that is not white. It is not typical for white people to say, I'm a European-American first. Mm-hmm. They say, I'm, I don't know, something that you can't see. I'm 
someone who grew up this place, or I'm, you know, a sister of a person with disability. I'm, I'm many things that I have to tell you about that I do not name the first thing that you can see, which is that I'm white. Absolutely. So I think that is what would be different if white people also, people of European descent in America, started saying that first as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Because we tend to, that's, and that's the, that's the function of whiteness, is that you don't have to think about that you're white. So you start looking and searching for all these other things. Like when we do this activity, um, people are like, I'm a hiker. I'm a cook. I'm like... I'm a brunette. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, that's not really a social identity, but I get it. Cool. <laughs> you know? Um, so, yeah, you start searching for all these other identities because it's invisible. The pr- and privilege is invisible. That's what it's created to do. Absolutely. I think that's it. I, yeah. Um, what was your closing question? Oh, what oh, what am I looking just, forward to? Uh, if you're optimistic about anything, if there's something to look forward <clears throat> to, if not, then that's also fine. Um. Well, one, what I'm looking forward to moving full, moving on from this point is the evolution and expansion of our consciousness as a collective. Um, to go back to the volcano um, metaphor or actually to use a metaphor of the purification of gold. Gold has to be heated so that all of the impurities can rise to the top and to be swept away. And so we're seeing, you know, the, the, what has been impure in our thinking, what's been impure in our culture, our ways of living, how we're treating one another based on socially constructed identifiers like it doesn't matter so i'm looking forward to the the next generation uh, innovation i'm a part of a conference that's coming up and these conference or and i shouldn't even call it it should be called like an unconference but the the organizers of this event the innovation that's coming out of we're not going to be virtual. We're going to be virtual, but we're not just going to sit in a Zoom meeting and listen to people talk all day. I mean, the innovation that's coming from these ladies, shout out to Facet, um, is absolutely amazing. I am so excited just to see what springs forth from the collective. You know, life is not going to be the same. So it is the, a beautiful and perfect time for uh, innovation and evolution. Um, if you anyone who studies any astrologers, uh, astrologers are telling us in terms of where the heavens and the stars and the planets are aligned, we're in the same position as the world was when we came out of the dark ages and went into the Renaissance. Well, let's hope that this brings a Renaissance. Yes, sure. yes. That'd be the Roaring Twenties again. <laughs> uh, well thank you so much ariel um it was a pleasure having you thank you for having me yes we hope to have you on sometime in the future you know i think things are ever changing so hopefully there'll be uh, another new perspective that you create or a new thing that we can like, have absolutely yeah all right well thank you so much thank you mission impact is sponsored by grace social sector consulting Grace Social Sector Consulting helps nonprofits and associations become more strategic and innovative for greater mission impact. Download free resources on strategic planning,
program portfolio review, design thinking, and more at gracesocialsector.com slash resources. So again, thank you to Ariel. Um, I think one of the things that I took away from that conversation was how regardless of your position within an organization or a company, you are a leader and you are, play an active role in, uh, in instilling change. Um, whether it's voicing up from, you know, responding to an email, seeing something, you know, it's kind of like that, that, that subway adage here. If you see something, say something. <laughs> uh, so that was, that was a very, uh, very big takeaway from me. What about you? Yeah. And I think building on that, it's just thinking about for each person, kind of what's their sphere of influence. So it could be with their coworkers, could be on their team. Mm-hmm. Um, and right, either you're kind of playing along with the system or you're, you're asking questions and, and um, helping people perhaps see, see things a little bit differently, uh, questioning you know, the, the kind of commonly accepted norms that maybe mm-hmm. aren't even, that are so, so normalized that uh, people don't even see them. So by asking some questions, you can help, help lift those things to the, to the surface, from under the surface. Yeah, it's like uh, if if you're naturally inquisitive, then you know the current work landscape is 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 keen for you. like it's just ideal for you. <laughs> to, and it's hard too, though, because you know people get tired of people who ask too many questions. That's true, but that's that could you know? just be like the you know that's the old regime trying to instill its power. Just like you ask too that's many right. questions, be quiet. That's right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, for our audience and our listeners, if uh, if you have any questions that you'd like to send us um, for Carol and myself to answer and uh, our guests of the week, um, please feel free to send those to culturefitpod at gmail.com. Um, and that's it. Have a good rest of your day. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode. I really appreciate the time you spend with me and my guests. You can find how to connect with our guest, Ariel Salome, as well as my co-host for this episode, Peter Cruz, as well as any links and resources mentioned during the show in the show notes at missionimpactpodcast.com slash show notes. I want to thank Izzy Strauss-Riggs for her support in editing and production, as well as April Kuster of 100 Ninjas for her production support. Please take a minute to review and rate Mission Impact on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. It helps other people find the show, and we appreciate it. 